All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover this week and not a lot of time to do it in, so we are going to jump right in as we talk through our series on what is a person. Last week, we looked at the topic of gender, and this week, we turn our attention to the topic of sex and sexuality. We have all been raised in a world that has perpetually told us two damaging lies. The first is sexual fulfillment is the highest form of satisfaction. That if you cannot experience sexual fulfillment, then you will not know the highest form of joy available to you in the world. That's the first lie. The second lie is that you should be radically free to sexually express yourself or fulfill yourself in any way as long as it doesn't harm someone else. That's the second lie. Now, all of us have been raised in a world that is looking to do catechism. You know, we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism, and that word, the concept of a catechism is to kind of faithfully begin to step-by-step instruct somebody in accordance with what you believe to be true, good, and beautiful. Catechisms are teaching tools. And the church isn't the only one with catechisms, though the church has been one that has held up catechisms as a way of formation of guiding someone along as they learn what's true, good, and beautiful. But there are counter-catechisms. There are cultural catechisms. And all of us are born into a world that has a very clear catechism on the topic of sex. You have all been raised and are living, and are maybe some of you now raising children, in a world that has a clear cultural catechism for sex and sexuality. So I know that when we talk about this topic, it can feel uncomfortable. It can make us feel a little bit awkward. But the reality is, is that part of our avoidance of this topic has led us to a place where the cultural catechisms are not only so persuasive, they're the only ones on offer because we have muzzled God's word on the topic of sex and sexuality. And we cannot do that. We cannot do that. So we have to explore what the Bible says about these topics. Because the church, mostly out of fear of stepping on a landmine, has almost remained entirely silent on the topic of sex and sexuality. When they have spoken, they've often just merely doubled down on clarifying unrighteous views of sex and sexual activity. And that's important. We do have to draw a line between what is righteous and what is unrighteous. But if the church has historically had a message about sex, it's been watch out, don't think about it, don't even talk about it, don't point at it, don't think about it, don't consider it, don't talk about it, don't discuss it, don't pray about it, just don't even talk about it at all. And we have to move past that because I believe God's worth holds a vision of sex and sexuality that is not only true, but it's coherent and it's compelling. So we're going to look at three questions today, okay? The first one is, what is sex? That's the first question. What is sex? That's the first one. The second one, how has sin impacted our sexuality? How has sin impacted our sexuality? And then third, what are the unique possibilities and hurdles for Christian sex? What are the unique hurdles and possibilities to healthy Christian sex lives? Now, we're going to look at Genesis 2, verses 21 through 25, and I'll tell you, the Bible talks about sex way more than we feel comfortable talking about sex. So there's any number of passages I could have gone to. There's a whole book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, that we treat like it's, you know, kryptonite, um, because we're afraid of how much it talks about a positive vision 
for sex. So we're going to just look at a little bit today. But if you're wondering, does the Bible say more than what we're covering? The answer is yes, it does. But I'm going to read Genesis 2, verses 21 through 25 to get us started today. After I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond by saying, thanks be to God. The reason we do that is that God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. We want to give thanks for that. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's begin with this question. What is sex? Now, sex in kind of cultural conversations can be used often to refer to one of two things. It can be used to refer to our biological design as male or female. This is what we often refer to as gender. It's what we discussed last week at length. But sex can also, and I think probably be more accurately used, to refer to what the Bible calls a one flesh union. A one flesh union. You see this in verse 24, that the father, uh, that a man shall leave his father and mother, and, and so will the wife, and they shall become one flesh. This one flesh union. We consider sex as not only a uniquely human act. Sex is not only uniquely human, but human sex is absolutely unique. Other creatures in God's world multiply through sex. Animals have sex. They multiply through sex. But human sex is utterly unique. It's not animalistic because humans are not animals. We are creatures created in the image of God. We're not just body. We're not just matter. We're composed of body and soul. And for this reason, human sex is absolutely unique because it's not just the collision of bodies. It's as one pastor has called it, a mingling of souls. Human sex is not just two bodies together. Human sex is something deeper than that. It carries unique possibilities, hurdles, threats, and joys because it is carried out by image bearers. It's carried out by image bearers. And for this reason, it can be uniquely beneficial and it can be uniquely complicated. Because it's not just like any other creatures. It is unique because it is humans. And as we looked in the first week of this series, humans are creatures, but we're not like any other creatures that God created. We have been created in the image of God. We are unities of body and soul. And subsequently, that charges everything we do in this world in a way that is different than any other created thing. And that applies to so many things, but today we need to look at how it applies to the question of sex. It's clear in Scripture that human sexual activity not, involves not just our bodies, but our spirits, our souls. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, a passage that is calling us to flee from sexual immorality, just listen to the Apostle Paul's words about sex and sexual immorality. Just consider what he has to say. 
1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now listen to this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The language that's used here about the act of sex reinforces what you're hearing in Genesis 2. Sex is a sacred thing. It's not just bodies colliding. It's bodies and souls together being joined and torn asunder. And it creates incredible collateral damage in the human life. It's clear that sex involves not just our bodies, but our spirits, our souls. Hebrew word for knowledge is yada. Yada, it's what you hear in Genesis 4.1 when it talks about the knowing of a wife. It's, it's an intimate form of knowledge. It's a word that's used for a kind of knowledge that is entailed in sexual activity. It's an intimate Knowledge. See, the, the Israelite imagination baked in the concept of intimacy right in to the event and act of sexual activity. Why? Because the sex that God intends for creatures created in his image is not transactional. It's intimate. It's an embodied one flesh union of a husband and a wife within the context of a marriage. This is what God has intended from the beginning, and it's what sin has confused. Sex is the one flesh act that is meant to be experienced and enjoyed within only one context, which is the covenant marriage between a husband and a wife. So if sex refers to the event or the act of this one flesh union, what is sexuality? What is sexuality? I, mean, I think this is an important question to ask because there is so much conversation on the topic of human sexuality these days. And like many conversations, it almost feels like the definitions are presumed from the start. And subsequently, nobody really knows what we're talking about. We just know there are some words we should use and other words that we shouldn't use. So no movement is made. There's no growth. There's no kind of angle towards truth because we're just kind of having a conversation with words that we just kind of feel like the meanings are superfluous or inconsequential ill-defined. When we think about sexuality, we're not talking about the event or act of a one flesh union. We're talking about sexual desires. We're talking about how we experience unique sexual desires. We're talking about the desires that move us towards intimacy, the desires that move us towards romance, the desires that move us towards that one flesh union that the Bible is talking about. And listen, because of the impact of sin, our desires, we're born into this world, and our desires, they're broken from the start. It's like a styrofoam cup with holes in the bottom. You can pour good things in, but the human heart just leaks them out. 
We're born broken. We're born with broken sexual desires, and they show up in a myriad and multitude of ways. But we are born with desires, desires for intimacy, desires for romance, desires for this one flesh union. And these desires structurally are good. They're intended to be good. It's not bad that we experience sexual desires. It's a part of how we have been created. We have been created with the ability to experience sexual desires. Structurally, that's good by God's good design. And yet because of the impact of sin, the direction of our sexual desires is twisted. It's twisted. Now, throughout human history, there have been more and less culturally taboo ways that those twisted desires have shown themselves up. But the fact remains, every person who has ever lived but the Lord Jesus was broken by sin and as a part of that brokenness experienced broken sexual desires. Everyone. Everyone stands in need of grace to restore what sin has broken. And while in Genesis 2, we're getting the positive vision for what this is going to be, a husband and a wife joining together in a one flesh union, in Genesis 3, we find out why that is very complicated. We figure out what's twisted up that intention. So look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 8. Because while our bodies are built to come together in one flesh sexual activity, Like all good gifts from God, sin has twisted that up. So look at Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, go back up to Genesis 2.25. Genesis 2 ends with what? And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The first impact of sin... In verse 7 of chapter 3, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And what do they immediately do? They try to cover this nakedness. They try to hide it. When Genesis 2 was trying to communicate the kind of intimacy that Adam and Eve were to enjoy, the writer of Genesis 2, his kind of final point of this beautiful chapter of this union of Adam and Eve is what? They were naked and not ashamed. And what's the first collateral damage of sin entering the world? They're naked and ashamed. From the very beginning, sin has impacted our sexuality in a very substantive way. Sin leads to four things that I want to point out to you in terms of its impact on our sexuality. The first, sin leads to sexual shame. Sin leads to sexual shame. 
we experience shame in regards to our sexual desires, our sexual activity, in very unique and palpable ways. There are very few secret sins we'd rather keep secret than those that apply to our lives of sex and sexual desire. Those are the ones we'd like to keep buried, right? If we came together today and we're like, great, we're going to have a group confession, right? We're not. Um, But if we were, I would imagine at the very bottom of the list for every single one of us in terms of the sins that we would be ready to confess would be those sins that apply to our sex lives. Those would be the ones. We feel incredible amounts of shame. And this isn't something that is unusual. It it happened immediately after sin entered the world. Adam and Eve go, we were naked and we're not ashamed. This is totally normal. This is good. This is right. This is beautiful. This is intimate. Sin enters the world. I have to hide myself from you immediately. I have to cover myself up. The beauty of sexual desires rightly expressed is that it is a vulnerable act of love. But its vulnerability is a two-edged sword because when sin impacts it with substance and significance, it will shudder what God has meant to be a beautiful expression of love and life in the right place. It'll hide it. It'll cover it up. Sin leads to sexual shame. It's not what God intended, but because we know, and how do we know this? We don't know it just because they try to cover themselves up. What's the first question God asked them? He says, but the Lord God called the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? God immediately is trying to pull out from Adam and Eve. Listen, why are you hiding? You're hiding because you're naked? How do you know that you're naked? Right? He's immediately trying to get to the source of their shame. Right? Because sin doesn't just lead to sexual shame. shame. It leads to alienation. Sin leads to alienation from other people. Betrayal. Look at what Adam says. Look at what Eve says. Where are you, God says. They're hiding. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? What's the woman do? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Blame, right? Immediately enters the situation. Betrayal happens. God is looking at Adam for an answer, and Adam does not give God an honest answer. Adam betrays Eve. See, sin doesn't just lead to sexual shame. Sin leads to alienation from other people. And it particularly, it particularly leads to alienation from people of the opposite sex. This is happening right here in the garden. It's happening throughout the story of Scripture. You know, sometimes people who are skeptical of the Bible will read the Bible and they'll be like, look at how men and women treated one another in the Bible. Why would God condone that? He doesn't. It's an impact of sin. It's an impact of sin. Sin leads to alienation from other people. It makes us strangers to one another, but it, all, it also creates a unique kind of alienation between man and woman. Now, instead of moving towards one another in intimacy and love, we recoil from each other in betrayal and alienation. Now, we see this in so many different ways in the life of our culture. But one of the principal ways that we see it is just through objectification. The objectification of a man or woman treats that person as a means to an end. What can you give me? We make people easily discardable in this world, and that is a symptom of the alienation that sin has created between us and each other, and particularly 
between men and women. Sin leads to sexual shame. Sin leads to alienation. Betrayal happens right out of the gate with Adam and Eve throwing each under the bus. Genesis 4, do you know what happens in Genesis 4? Murder. It's the next chapter. It's the next generation after Adam and Eve. A brother kills a brother, right? Right out of the gate. Adam and Eve are hiding from God. They're hiding behind the trees. They're covering up their nakedness. Their children are killing one another. They're betraying one another. Sin doesn't just lead to sexual shame for self. Sin leads to alienation from other people. Right? So much of the the way that we treat one another often is an expression of the shame that we experience individually. Kurt Thompson In his wonderful book, The Soul of Shame, he says, shamed people shame people. And it's true. Many of us who experience deep shame around sexual sin, and if you've been there, you know. If you've walked those roads, you know. When you're experiencing deep shame as a result of sexual sin, you don't treat other people in the way that God calls you to treat them. Why? Because you despise yourself. You've shamed yourself. And so what's the easiest thing to do? Well, it's to blame, it's to betray, it's to shame another person, it's to deal transactionally with another person. It's very difficult to give the love of God when you're unwilling to receive it. It's very difficult to extend forgiveness when you're unwilling to ask for it. Sin leads to shame. Sin leads to alienation. Sin also leads to malformed sexual desire. Sin leads to broken sexual desire for everyone. For everyone. Everyone who has ever lived but the Lord Jesus Christ experiences broken sexual desires. What's the fundamental word that we think of when we think of broken sexual desires? Lust. Lust. Lust is a general word for all manner of broken sexual desire. Lust is desiring something we shouldn't want or indulging in something we shouldn't want. Lust is universally experienced as an impact of sin. Everyone experiences lust. Now, it may not all be directed towards the same end, the same object, the same kind of thing, the same kind of someone, but lust is universally experienced, this desire for more, this desire for something that we should not want, this desire to do something we should not do. Sin leads to broken sexual desire, and lust is kind of the catch-all junk drawer for all of the different ways that that can play out. Let me give you two more examples of how sin can lead to broken sexual desire. The first, entitlement. Entitlement. A kind of sexual selfishness that believes that sex is merely a transaction. I've done something for you, you should reciprocate and do something for me. This is a very commercialized view. It's a very transactional view of what sex is and what sexual desires are for. It is... This kind of I give, you give, I give, you give. It's this kind of means to an end mentality in treating one another. This is a way that sin shows up in broken sexual desires. But we also, we have to address that one of the principal ways, at least culturally, in the last 30 or 40 years that we've had to reckon with what is a righteous and an unrighteous view of sex 
is when it comes to the question of same-sex sexual desires and activity. And same-sex attraction is another way that sin has impacted people at the level of sexual desire. It takes the structure of sexual desires, which are good, and it points them in a direction outside God's will for sexual activity. Now, let me just pause here, okay? Let me pause here because this uh, take the speck out of your own eye before you remove the log out of another's is a pretty relevant proverb for this part of Scripture and this part of the sermon because typically we are well acquainted with pointing out sexual sin in the other. We are far less comfortable identifying sexual sin in our own life. And Scripture is not going to give us the foundation to say, guess what? You are now the detective in everyone else's sexual brokenness but your own. That's not really what Scripture is inviting us into. Scripture is inviting us into a compassionate conviction that says, you know what? I want to model what a righteous view of sex is in my own life. And I want to be able to give an account for why I believe that's a true view when asked. And I don't want to be part of kind of condoning or celebrating unrighteous views of sexual activity. That's the tension of Scripture is living right there in a place of love, humility, and truth. You lose any one of those three, you lose the game. Humility, love, and truth. Sin leads to broken sexual desire for everyone. Lust is a general box for that. But there are many ways that it expresses itself. But sin doesn't just lead to broken sexual desire. Sin leads to broken or sinful sexual activity. Shame leads to alienation. Alienation leads to broken sexual desires. And broken sexual desires lead to sinful sexual activity. Let me give you some examples of this. And here I just want to know, I I tread carefully on the sacredness of your personal stories. So I just want you to know that I know what it feels like to be sitting where you're at, knowing what I'm about to step on, okay? When we think about broken sexual activity, there's a few things that we can think about. The first one I want to mention is assault and abuse. And the the statistics are clear. Sexual assault and abuse impacts many men and women. I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't people in here who haven't been impacted by sexual assault and abuse. And sexual assault and abuse are evil. They're unrighteous. They are wicked acts. And they are often committed against people in their moments of greatest vulnerability. And I am not naive enough to think that some of you, you don't know this personally and palpably. And maybe you've buried it because whoever perpetrated that injustice came to you in the guise of righteousness or threatened you in a way that suggested that to, to name it, to address it, would be to do greater harm than what has been done to you. And that's unrighteous. It's wicked. It's evil. Sexual assault and abuse is a wicked and evil thing. And it is a broken expression of sexual desire and sexual activity. If you are the perpetrator of sexual assault and abuse, there is forgiveness. And if you're the victim of sexual assault and abuse, there is restoration. There is grace upon grace upon grace. Sin leads to broken sexual activity. Another one that we would be remiss to not address is pornography. We, it would be foolish for us 
to preach on sex and sexuality without addressing what is, in my view, the greatest threat to us living the lives that God has called us to live in our sexual lives, which is pornography. I want to be honest with you. We are in an era of a porn epidemic. It, it, it is that level of problem. And I know we would rather not address it. It is beyond the elephant in the room. It is the dragon in our homes. Pornography is the greatest threat, I think, to a robust vision of human personhood in the world outside of abortion. Pornography is a threat. It, it is sinful sexual activity. Along with digital gluttony and hyper-consumerism, pornography stands as the greatest threat to you, your marriage, the quality of life of your kids, their ability to have a flourishing Christian sex life one day. Pornography is a threat. It is. And I know that there are some in here who are quietly nursing the dragon in their home. You think you've got it stuffed in a closet. You think you have it hid in the attic. And you do not know that if you continue to nurse it, it is going to devour you. It's going to devour you. Let me plead with you. There is forgiveness. There is grace upon grace upon grace. And it will not have the impact that God desires for you if you keep this in the darkness. And any freedom you think you have there is a lie. It's a poison. And you can drink it in thimbles, but it poisons you nonetheless. And I beg you, come to Jesus. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. He is more kind than you can imagine. Take it from someone who knows what it's like to be caught in the throes of addiction to pornography. Grace is better. Grace is better. Remember, I was a senior in high school. I needed a youth minister to step into my life and say, grace is better than what you're settling for. I was a pastor's kid. I was so terrified that if I brought my sin to light, my dad would lose his job. I was scared into the dark. I knew there wasn't any joy there, but I didn't think there was any other way. And God lifted me from the pit of despair. A youth minister invited me into grace, and it is better. It is better. Whatever you think you'll lose in grace, God is going to multiply a hundredfold in your life, in the light, I promise you. Sin leads to broken sexual activity. This would also include sexual activity outside of the marriage of a man and a woman. This includes adultery, same-sex sexual activity, any heterosexual sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. I know that our culture wants to trivialize sex and to say sex is either everything, so it's got to be the thing you give your life to, or sex is nothing, so it's inconsequential as long as you don't hurt anyone. But that's not true. Sex is a sacred thing. Sex is a sacred thing. And to engage in sexual activity outside of the frame that God has created for it is like a fish trying to breathe out of the water it was created to live in. It will not flourish. It will not flourish. I want to, I want to take us just for a moment. That the message that you've heard so far is probably the message you've heard before. God has created us with sexual desires. That's not bad, it's good. That's true. 
Sin breaks our sex and sexuality in very palpable ways, and here are some ways that it has. You've heard that message before. Where we're going now, this is where, this is where I need us to kind of just buckle up our seatbelts and think through four things together, because I want us to think about the possibilities and hurdles of healthy sex in the Christian life. There are four things I want us to do here. Write them down if you're taking notes. I want us to acknowledge the possibilities. I want us to name the hurdles. I want us to address the threats. I don't want us to dignify and care for the faithfully celibate. Those are the four things. Let's, let's go. Possibilities. It is good to want and to pursue a healthy and vibrant and satisfying sex life. It's good. That's a good thing to want. I just want to bless that desire. If you are in a marriage and you want your sex life to be good, guess what? God wants it to be good too. And so I want us to name and acknowledge the possibilities of a healthy and vibrant sex life. What could that look like? Well, the first thing is it would be intimate. It would be intimate. It's possible for sex to not just be the collision of bodies, but the mingling of souls. It will require thoughtful mutuality. It will require meaningful time together. It will require vulnerable conversations. Sex can be intimate, but do you know what? If sex is going to be intimate, you will have to engage in intimacy in the non-sexual activity of your marriage. If you want an intimate sex life, if you want it to be more than just this kind of collision of bodies, then you will have to engage with intimacy in the non-sexual activity of your marriage, okay? So it is possible for sex to be intimate, but it requires thoughtful mutuality and vulnerable communication. The second is pleasure. It's possible for sex to not just be a chore, but to be a delight. It takes a willingness from both a husband and a wife to talk honestly in a shame-free zone about fears, hopes, histories, desires, it requires a foundation of emotional intimacy, and it requires clear communication. Now, do you know what's going to cripple that? The first one, not engaging in intimacy and the non-sexual activity of your life. You can't have a deeply delightful sex life unless you're prepared to have a deeply intimate non-sex life with your spouse. They're connected. One is rooted in the other. The third, the third possibility is procreation. It's having children. It's having children. It's possible for sex to not just be intimate, for sex to not just be delightful, but it, it's possible for sex to be a place where God creates and gifts new life. That's a remarkable thing. That's an amazing thing. These are some incredible possibilities that God has designed for good sex, for sex that happens within the context God has created it for, and among people who are moving towards it in righteous ways. Those are some of the possibilities. Let's name some of the hurdles. Name some of the hurdles. What are some of the hurdles in the pursuit of a healthy and faithful sex life? The first is trauma. Trauma. We are shaped by both the wickedness of sin and the wounds of life. And some of us have deep wounds that shape how we approach the gift of sex. This means that we have to bring these wounds to the Lord. And it also means that spouses should exercise remarkable grace-driven patience, care, and compassion when these wounds present themselves. 
When these wounds surface in the life of a spouse, the other spouse should move towards that with incredible care, compassion, and patience. Not belligerence, not entitlement, not selfishness, but selflessness. A sacrificial desire to love when these wounds show up. Because of the brokenness of sexual sin in the world, many have experienced broken sexual activity in their life, and it's led to wounds. We have to exercise remarkable patience and love with one another in these moments. Physiology can be a hurdle in a healthy and faithful sex life. Sin hasn't just affected our souls, it's impacted our bodies. We are embodied creatures whose bodies are broken by sin. This means that not everything always works as we might hope. And we need to be gracious with one another. It's not just our souls that are broken by sin, it's our bodies that are broken by sin. And so we have to take into account that physiology can be a hurdle in a sex life. Expectations is a hurdle, right? Desire, because of the impact and influence of sexually explicit material, specifically through pornography, the expectation and desire gap that that can be experienced in the relationship between two spouses can be vast. It can be vast. And this expectation gap We need to take it into account. Not everyone experiences the same expectations or desires regarding intimacy. We have to exercise care, compassion, grace, tenderness with our spouses, knowing that not everyone approaches sex from the same background. We have to enter into this space with patience with one another. So those are some of the possibilities, and those are some of the hurdles. But what about threats? What are some of the threats? What are some of the enemies seeking to still kill and devour from you as you look to have a righteous sex life? Well, the first, which we've already mentioned, is pornography. Nothing will terrorize your life of sex and sexual intimacy more than pornography. It is, it is a sexual terrorist. It is going to strip mine your soul, and I am begging with you to turn away from it. I am, because it, it will try to undermine every good thing God has for you in sexual intimacy. Pornography is a great threat. There are others, though. Transactional, right? Transactional posture. You cannot experience intimate and delightful sex if you exclusively deal with your spouse in a transactional manner. It'll just become another good or service that's offered in exchange for a chore that you did or some time that you gave or something that you conceded on or an argument you lost or won. If you try to experience what God has for your sex life in a transactional way, it will fail. It will fail. You'll deal with that person not as an end in and of themselves, but as a means to an end, and nothing will jeopardize your ability to engage in intimacy by saying, I really don't want you. I want something from you. If we deal transactionally with our spouses, it will compromise God's vision for our sex life. Last one, pressure. Pressure. If you want to destroy the potential for a healthy and vibrant sex life, substitute romance, intimacy, waiting, and patience for pressure, guilt, shaming, or coercion. Not only will this undermine what God intends, like pornography, it's wicked. And let me just say for the record, if you are in a marriage where you are experiencing pressure or coercion for sexual activity, you should tell your spouse that that's wicked. And if you feel like it would be unsafe to do so, you should tell someone at this church because there is help. If you're in a sexually coercive relationship, whether you're male or female, there is help for you here. You are not going to be left out. You're not going to be isolated, and we are not going to allow those kinds of dangerous, wicked, unrighteous situations to persist in the life of our body. There is help here. Pressure is a way of threatening what God intends for your sex life. 
Not everybody at our church experiences life the same way. We're not all the same. And there are some groups that we need to dignify and care for because it can be easy for us to read our experience of the world over everyone else's experience as well. So I want to highlight some groups in the life of our church that I think you should be mindful of and caring towards when you think about God's vision for your sex life as a couple and what righteous sex lives look like in the life of our church. We have many singles in the life of this church. In this church, in our community, we're not all married. This means we want to acknowledge that there are people who experience holy desires towards a spouse and the intimacy that attends to that relationship, and they're still waiting. And we should move towards these brothers and sisters with care, with consideration. We should, in healthy and holy ways, invite them into the care and the community of our households. We should do that together. We should honor what they're doing. We should honor their striving to live faithful, righteous lives. And we should extend community care and love towards them as they wait for the holy desires of their heart to be fulfilled. Persons with disabilities or impairments, because of the private and covered nature of our bodies, there are certainly those among us, right, known or unknown, who experience unique disabilities that challenge their experience of a healthy sex life. We won't know who those people are, but we should be mindful that they're among us. We should be mindful that they're among us. We should be mindful against reading our experience of sex over theirs. We should be generous in our consideration of them. Same-sex attracted brothers and sisters. We're a church family that includes men and women who experience attraction to the same sex. They're looking to live grace-filled lives of holiness in their sex lives. They are abstaining from acting on these desires. They are models to us that the Christian life requires of all of us, not just them, the transformation of our sex lives and desires. And we should be considerate. We should be caring. We should honor them. We should love them. We should treat them with grace, with holiness, and celebrating the victory of faithful lives lived faithfully. The widow, there are members of our church family and community who have lost their spouses. These are people who have known the fields of marriage, and they know what the Christian life requires of them, and that they're now in a different season of their lives. These are people who have known the kind of beauty and possibility of intimacy in a Christian marriage, and yet now, because of loss or death, it's been removed from them. We should move towards those people with consideration and with care. Those struggling with infertility. We have husbands and wives in our church family who long to be able to conceive and yet experience difficulty and struggle in childbearing. We cannot forget to exercise gentleness as we remain long-suffering in prayer with them and for them. Mindful that, that for some who desire procreation and their sex life, it's not something that God has given in this season. I know in light of all of this, there are tempting paths for us to minimize what God's word has to say about sex in our present moment. There are some who say sex is everything. You can't really live a life of flourishing without engaging in sex. There are some who will say sex is anything. If it doesn't hurt or harm someone else, it really shouldn't matter to you what people do with their bodies. There will some who say sex is nothing, meaning it really is in a loss to not experience sexual intimacy. But for the Christian, we have to deny these paths, and we have to embrace the path that for the story of the Bible, sex is a sacred thing. It's a given gift from God that is to be enjoyed without shame between a man and a woman within the context of a marriage. Sex isn't everything. Sex isn't anything. Sex isn't nothing. Sex is a sacred thing. It's a sacred thing that God has given as a gift and that sin has twisted as a curse. 
And what I want you to hear from me as we go from this place today is Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Grace, grace, grace abounds in Christ. Grace that can restore, grace that can repair, grace that can renew. And on the foundation of that grace, help is available. You don't have to try to do this by yourself. And you may think, hold on, I don't want to talk with you, pastor, about my sex life. I get it. I understand. While we are glad to help, there are a lot of other people we can refer you to who are trusted guides and counselors who can help you, who can help your marriage along this path. You do not have to do it alone. You should not try to do it in secret. And you should deal with shame before you try to deal with a vibrant and healthy sex life because shame will compromise it at every turn. And there's only one place to deal with shame. There are many helps in our community for a healthy sex life, but there is only one Savior who can release you from shame. There are many people who will help and guide you out of the muck and mire of confusion in your intimate lives, but there is only one who can rescue you from the bogs of despair that sexual sin leads to, and that is Jesus Christ. At the end of Genesis 3, once Adam and Eve have realized they're naked and ashamed, how does Genesis 3 end? In verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and look what our God does in verse 21. In their nakedness and shame, it says the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Do you know what God does when you bring your sexual shame and sin to him? Does he mock you? No. Does he despise you? No. Does he embarrass you? No. He covers you. He covers you. And as he clothed Adam and Eve with the skin of an animal, he clothes us with a better garment, a better covering. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing now, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that when you bring your sin to God, he takes that sin, he places it on Jesus, and he places the righteous garments of Christ on you. I don't know what you think God can't release you from, but I know that God can release you from sexual shame. I don't know what you think God can't break the shackles of addiction from, but I know that God can break the, sh- break the shackles of sexual addiction. I know it. I have walked those paths. And do you know what they're paved with? Grace. The whole way. All the way into the kingdom. And a song. And do you know what the song is? The delighting love of God. I don't know what you think will be said about you when you come out of the darkness and into the light, but I know what God will say. And he'll say, Welcome, my beloved son. Welcome, my beloved daughter. And the road to a righteous sex life will be paved by grace you can never lose because you can never earn. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We pray that you would bless us in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would free us from the shackles of addiction, shame, and sin, and that in all things that we would walk on the grace-paved roads of faith in Christ. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me as we receive the Lord's Supper?